So uh, I'd like to introduce Will Barker, um, who's kindly agreed to talk to us today um, about his paper on the use of contrast radiography in equine practice. So thanks for joining us, Will. And we're just going to start by asking Will if he could explain what is the difference between positive and negative contrast radiography? Yeah, sure. The, the difference between positive and, and negative contrast radiography, and more specifically to the equine patient, um, is the use of different materials to improve contrast on, on radiographs. Um, in terms of positive contrast, those are materials that are generally denser uh, than than tissues, whether that's soft tissues or, or bone, um, and generally in the equine uh, and orthopaedic world, that's um, iohexol uh, and um, or malleable probes. Really, those are probably the only two um, radio dense um, contrasts that we use. Uh, and actually, in terms of negative contrast um, materials, we um, very rarely really use them. The only one we do use, and actually can be a huge benefit, particularly in wounds, is gas. And, and tracking gas uh, in wounds on radiographs uh, is very, uh, very, very useful because it can give a very early indication on, on what you might be dealing with. Okay. And in terms of applications of contrast radiography, what would you say that it's a more useful technique for routine cases or for emergency cases or is it applicable to to both of those it's definitely applicable to both of them and i think over the last 10 or 15 years they've evolved somewhat i think um particularly before ultrasonography routine um contrast radiography uh, was used a huge amount just trying to get a little bit more information uh, particularly when um, diagnostic arthroscopy wasn't around, um, trying to get a bit more information, and particularly a bit more of an accurate diagnosis and prognosis. But now, as other diagnostic imaging modalities have, have come along, we found that actually routine uh, contrast um, radiography has declined probably. And really, in terms of day-to-day um, -day use, routine um, contrast radiography is really limited to... Um, diagnostic analgesia of the navicular bursa uh, and now more recently the digital flexor tendon sheath um, both firstly for the navicular bursa I think most people um, use contrast uh, radiography to make sure that they put their local anaesthetic in the correct place I know others just use um, the needle and take an x-ray with the needle in and it gives you a bit more um, time to think if you, if you can uh, inject your, your contrast and your, and your local anaesthetic and then take a radiograph afterwards once the the, um, the worries of the needle being uh, in the foot are gone. Um, in terms of uh, the digital flexor tendon sheath, um, Andrew Fitzjackson at the RBC um, has shown that um, contrast can be very useful at identifying uh, malachitaires in the high limbs of, of draft breeds and sort of native um, native breeds to the UK where their skin is much, much thicker and it's more um, difficult to identify things ultrasonographically. And the paper also did show it was reasonably accurate at identifying um, tears in the or marginal tears, sorry, in the deep digital flexor tendon sheet. Um, those, for me, really are the routine places we use it um, outside of the emer of emergency work. In terms of we move on to emergency work, again, ultrasonography seems to be um, moving uh, into its place, really, in the majority of, of scenarios. 
particularly for, for things like fistulas, um, where we have chronic tracts, um, and traditionally we may in have injected uh, contrast into them to try and work out their trajectory. And nowadays we are we're much more commonly using ultrasonography to follow those tracks. It gives us a huge amount of more information about where that tract um, may have gone, what structures it may have traumatized on the way, and therefore giving a much better um, uh, diagnosis and, and prognosis if we think that there's significant damage to soft tissues as well, something that may not be seen either till surgery or may even be missed at surgery if people aren't uh, shown it uh, or it's not been identified previously. Um, again, for wounds, it's, it's, it's useful, uh, particularly if, it's got, if we've got uh, penetrations into joints uh, where, there's, where there's suspicion of, of, uh, of a penetration into the joint. It can be useful, but again, it can catch you out. And uh, one of my points of the papers, which I don't know whether it came across or not, is the, the order with which you, uh, you do things. And um, certainly uh, it's my routine to, is to get all your diagnostic imaging out of the way before you introduce a needle into a joint. Because if you radiograph the, uh, the, the, um, the joint having taken your sample, you will have already introduced gas into the joint. And it's difficult to know whether that's come from your the defect or whether it's um, been introduced by your needle. And the same is on, on ultrasonography. Ultrasonography can be very useful for identifying gas in synovial structures. If you've already introduced it with your needle, uh, having done your contrast uh, radiography before your ultrasonography, uh, then you can be, be, try, uh, be trying to work out whether um, the gas has been introduced there um, by, by your needle rather than the wound. And again, false negatives with contrast radiography, um, they do occur, unfortunately. It's not always that we get egress um, from our defect out, in, uh, out through the skin and, and make it an obvious, uh, obvious on radiographs. Okay. Um, so you sort of already touched on this, really, um, when you when when you just when you just went on to that question. But I guess one of the limitations, as you've just said, is that the order that you um, put the contrast in. Um, as part of your workup, but are there any sort of contraindications to using contrast in when you're investigating equine cases? Generally not. I know that in earlier or in early um, publications, people would say that horses will develop a synovitis um, and have some some degree of effusion of joints having had contrast radiography performed, and that was mainly in diagnostics. But uh, of diagnostic uh, lamenesses, etc. And really, I, I don't really see a huge number of, of, of complications of using contrast. It's pretty benign. It doesn't appear to, uh, to set up a huge uh, amount of, uh, of irritation, particularly in the cases that we've used it in in, um, in um, telegrams. If we've gone on uh, to, to evaluate those sheets uh, telescopically, we've not really noticed any degree of inflammation within the sheet that may say that it's, it's contraindicated, really. So generally, it's, it's fairly benign, and I think yeah, it, has, it has a, definitely has a role, and, and particularly uh, if, if ultrasound machines are, are of limited quality, then certainly it certainly adds to your diagnostic arsenal if you, you want to use it in wounds. Okay. And then just one other question. There are several studies that look at um, using contrast in either in cadaver eggs or in live horses when they're um, assessing how far local diffuses. So, for example, looking at the proximal suspensory ligament studies that pick up in the foreleg carpal sheath penetration with the local. I just wondered whether 
you had an opinion on, it has been suggested in a couple of those papers that using contrast at the same time as putting your block in might be a useful way of assessing whether you've accidentally blocked the carpal sheath or the tarsal sheath or the tarsal metatarsal joint, for example. Is that a practical use of contrast or is that just kind of an interesting academic exercise? Um, I think it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting academic exercise and raises lots of questions about the accuracy of diagnostic analgesia. And if we look at the molecular weight of, uh, of contrast material, it may even um, underrepresent that at the same time. In terms of using it clinically on everyday uh, use, I personally don't. I think but in those blocks where it's high risk of putting the contrast in the wrong place, um, then yes, it is useful. I know that people have learned uh, through their own personal experience of blocking uh, tendon sheets with contrast materials. The, the odd occasion where actually they found out that their local anesthetic contrast material is no, not where they planned to put it in the, in the sheath, but actually subcutaneous or somewhere where they hadn't planned to put it. So it's certainly very useful for confirming that you've put it where you intend to put it. And that's definitely the case up around the back of the carpus and the carpal sheath as well. So. Um, so yes, no, I can I can see its role and it being very useful on a personal basis as to working out um, ensuring that you put your local anaesthetic in the correct place, particularly if you're if you're performing blocks that you're not all, you're not doing on an everyday basis. Okay, great. Thanks for answering the questions for the EV podcast. Um, and um, is there anything else? Any other comments that you wanted to make about your paper that we haven't covered? No, I think that's it actually. I think no, thank you very much for having me and uh, I hope it was helpful. Great, thanks Will. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I'd like to introduce Gail Hallowell, who's kindly agreed to um, be featured on the EVE podcast talking about her paper on medical management of large colon impactions. Thanks for um, agreeing to talk to us, Gail. No problem. And we're just going to ask Gail a few questions based on her review. So, could you just tell us what factors commonly cause colon impactions? Well, I can do my best. I suppose many factors have been proposed and make a reasonable amount of sense, but few have actually been proven. Certainly, we've there are various studies that have found associations. And these would include changes in exercise regime, particularly reduced exercise regimes where horses are stabled. Um, there's been some association or thoughts of association between parasite migration, and that was thought to relate, we think, to changes in gastrointestinal motility. We've got poor dentition leading to longer fibre lengths entering the um, large colon that require digestion and also coarse roughage, which goes along similar lines. There's been some association with stereotypies, which maybe we'll come back to later. Whether that's cause or effect, I think is probably open for debate. Um, we've got travel um, and presumably reduced exposure to um, water intake or reduced water intake. And then we've got pharmacologic agents such as alpha-2 agonists um, and um, opioids that might reduce gastrointestinal motility. Okay. And... It's a, a problem that we quite commonly encounter in, in um, both in first opinion and in uh, referral practice. And often people manage 
these cases by giving enteral fluid therapy. So could you give us some advice on what types of enteral fluids are recommended for treating these colon impactions and what would be your preference in, in managing fluid therapy? So I suppose simplistically when we're thinking about giving enteral fluids, we can think about giving hypotonic fluids, isotonic fluids, the same tonicity as plasma, and then hypertonic fluids. And I suppose when we think about dealing with pelvic flexure impactions, what we really want the water to do is stay within the colon so that it softens that impaction. So for me, the choice of fluid um, probably would be isotonic, so something that's got a similar tonicity to plasma. Um, there have been um, certainly some work that has um, used hypertonic fluids such as magnesium sulfate and the idea with magnesium sulfate being not only does it draw water into the colon but it also is a cathartic agent helping the or encouraging the mucosa to secrete water itself. Now because I would say Judith I'm not best at remembering um, complicated calculations the easiest things for me are always the simplest so um, I will often use half a gram per kilogram um, of magnesium sulfate diluted into six to eight litres of water as a starter with these horses to draw some water into the colon, act as that cathartic agent and start the process going. And then I would follow that with isotonic fluids. Now, if I'm not sitting in a hospital and I've not got my um, notes with me, then the easiest way to make isotonic fluids is to add nine grams of salt to one litre of water. So that's going to give us a 0.9% sodium chloride solution. If you want to be a bit fancier than that, then we can use five grams of sodium chloride and five grams of low salt, which contains both sodium and potassium chloride, because if we're going to withhold food in these horses for any periods of time, we're always going to start to drop that potassium as they're very reliant on their diet to get that electrolyte. So um, it would depend where I was, but I can remember both of those. Other people have used have added bicarbonate into that mixture, but that starts to make, for me anyway, some of those calculations a bit more complicated. So my approach would be half a gram per kilogram of mag sulfate to start with, and then I would follow that up, depending on what situation I was in, with an isotonic fluid of sodium and potassium chloride. Okay, that sounds sensible. Um, so then what about using mineral oil? Do you think that there's any evidence for the use of this? Because it seems to be... Um, go in and out of popularity amongst equine practitioners for using in colon impactions? So I looked pretty long and hard when I was um, researching the review for Eve and I found no evidence available in the literature that mineral oil had a role to play in the clearance of pelvic flexure impactions and I think that there are a sort of a few arms to this. Lots of people will swear by mineral oil because horses impactions clear but often mineral oil is not given in isolation but it's given with water as well. The other issues are that if you're giving mineral oil it's likely to cope that impaction and has um, anecdotally anyway got that there would be some thought that it would cope that impaction and it would stop water effectively being able to enter the fibre and um, that had, had impacted in the colon. The other thing is that there's always that risk, particularly in stoic animals, of um, 
putting that mineral oil rather than into the esophagus or demi-esophagus, but actually putting it into the trachea. And those horses um, are very unlikely to survive. There are a few reports that they do. So I suppose from an evidence-based medicine point of view, there isn't a lot of evidence, or there is no evidence for the use of mineral oil. It could do harm, and um, both in terms of leading to severe complications, but also um, actually hampering what you want that water to do. Um, and therefore, for me, I just don't think it has a place for use in the treatment of pelvic flexure infections in the 21st century. Okay, well, that's quite interesting. Um, do you ever use intravenous fluids? And when would you choose to use intravenous fluids instead of enteral fluids? Yeah, so I think the answer is not never. Um, for me, the times that I would use um, intravenous fluids where there is a pelvic flexure impaction is if there was clinico-pathologic evidence of hypovolemia and or dehydration in those patients. So if these animals were hypovolemic, increased heart rate, increased lactate, um, increased urine-specific gravity, um, then I might be inclined to treat them with both intravenous and enteral fluids. But the evidence doesn't support the use of intravenous fluids for primary pelvic flexure impactions in normovolemic patients. Okay, thank you. Um, some horses seem to develop recurrent impactions. Is there anything that um, owners or vets can do to try and um, improve this or reduce the likelihood of a recurrent impaction by changing management? I mean, I think sometimes it's very clear why horses might be developing impactions and then it's trying to manage that individual situation. I think the trickier ones are the horses that get recurrent impactions and there is no pattern. It's not after they have just done some very long ride in hot weather or they have been, they keep having to be stabled for various lameness issues. So I think those cases where we really don't know what the underlying cause may be, then it's trying to have a sort of sensible approach to those cases. So thinking about and making sure that they get a dental exam and make sure that their teeth are okay, making sure that they are on an appropriate anthelmintic regime and or checking them for um, endoparasites, which can be pretty difficult when we're considering some of the endoparasites are prepatent diseases. So trying to rely on faecal worm counts can be really challenging for us. I think that, which I don't like using the word stress, I think that horses that are stressed or have got increased sympathetic tone for whatever reason that might be, may well um, reduce gastrointestinal motility and perhaps predispose these horses to um, pelvic flexure impactions and other forms of gastrointestinal disease, to which trying to think how you might manage that stress. And often owners have a pretty good idea what the stresses are for their animals. And then I suppose the last thing would be making sure there weren't excessive carbohydrates in their diet. Many of the horses that we all treat perhaps receive carbohydrates um, that they don't require or um, simple carbohydrates that they don't require um, because certainly if we've got excess carbohydrates it might then lead to um, changes in the microbiome, changes in um, colonic pH um, which will ultimately, um, if we've got acidosis in the colon, it might well reduce GI motility. Okay. 
so sort of um, related to the stress aspect is the stereotypical behaviours and um, stereotypical behaviours have been linked with certain other types of colic so the epiploic frame and entrapments are sometimes linked to or have been linked to um, cribbing and wind sucking type behaviour is there any kind of relationship between stereotypical behaviour and uh, large colon impactions? Yeah, there certainly was a study done in the 90s that suggested there was an association between them. I think it's always difficult being, being we have to be very careful, we find associations in studies, but that doesn't mean that um, stereotypical behaviour led to the impaction or led to some of these other forms of colic that it's linked to. So I think that, I suppose it comes back to this whole idea of an imbalance in the in the autonomic nervous system, for me, between parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, and that horses that are trying to use coping mechanisms with stereotypies are perhaps more likely to have increased sympathetic nervous system tone, and therefore make them more likely to have reduced or um, erratic gastrointestinal motility. There was some work done in the late 90s that showed these horses that windsuck and some of the horses that crib bite actually don't swallow the air. So although they take air into their mouths, they don't swallow it. Because I think there is a perception amongst owners and veterinary surgeons that they swallow that air that then leads to that gas buildup in the colon. So I perhaps have a slightly different view of stereotypies in that some horses need those stereotypies to cope with life. So in an ideal world, what you would do was try and minimise those stressors so that the horse hadn't got those stereotypies. But a bit like taking a packet of cigarettes away from somebody who is uh, addicted to nicotine, I think that just trying to stop them performing those stereotypies might make an already stressed horse um, even more stressed that it can't then use its coping mechanism. So I try, when we think about stereotypies, rather than stop them, do the stereotypies, think about what might we be able to do in order to minimise them doing those stereotypies because they cope better. Now maybe that means if they're on a very busy yard, maybe they'd be happier on a quieter yard, maybe they'd be happier in the field, maybe they'd be happier in the stable. So I think again it's trying to really get to the bottom of what, what it is and why they perform those stereotypies um, rather than just saying well if we stop them doing it then it's going to stop them getting that form of colic. Okay. That's very interesting. I've never thought about the nervous system in relation to stereotypical behaviour before, so that's quite interested to um, hear about that. So that's but there's no evidence for that, Judith. It's just you just... know trying to trying to think about it perhaps from an, another yeah. another way. Okay. So that's all the questions that we've got for you, Gail. Um, do you, was there anything else that you wanted to um, mention in relation to the managing the colon impactions? I don't think so, no. Okay, well then, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me um, and for participating in the EVE podcast. No problem at all.